a lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film historian and curator Alicia Fletcher and actor-comedian Petey Gibson. Movies and movie tastes evolve, but the slapstick comedy is something that's been around since the very beginning. Film is a visual medium. Of course, some of our earliest film stars would be people who would take a pie to the face, an amazing pratfall, or even a whole house falling around them to get a laugh. Now, sure, we'd all like to pretend we're very sophisticated and require an Oscar Wilde caliber quip to make us chuckle. But the truth is, I will lose it when someone gets flying tackled at the knees every single time. Now, today, we're looking at two movies that lean heavily on the goofy slapstick vibe, a surprisingly present theme in 1991. But before we do that, Petey, you are a trained, funny person. What do you want to think about when you're crafting the perfect physical gag? Now, you came up through the Groundlings, which is known for their characters. Yes. I mean, so much about the, so much about physical comedy is about the element of surprise, you know, where you see somebody just walking and then suddenly, boom, they fall into a pit or they give a, they give a look and they, you know, like there's so many amazing physical comedians that even just the widening of their eyes, you, you start to get laughing because you know that Lucille Ball is about to do or say something, or you know that, you know, Steve Martin is about to have a full, you know, panic attack or whatever it is. So we start to get trained by these comedians that like, uh oh, it's coming. But yeah. It's funny you bring up Steve Martin because like in the mid 90s, uh, we, were, we were talking about um, uh, Fish Called Wanda and coming uh, out the same year as Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and his Dirty Rotten Scoundrels performance where Steve Martin is there. He kind of goes full Muppet. Like you don't think of him as like a Muppety sort of guy because he's often very dry. But when he goes physical, he is limbs flailing and like the eyes popping and it's very Muppety. Oh, him and Roxanne is one of the, hmm. you know, his... His reasons that he's giving, that he lays out, is one of the greatest scenes, I think, in cinematic history. Incredible. We don't see a lot of, like, the physical comedy stuff coming out now as our as our stars. Um, a lot of stuff is very chatty right now. Like, we love a heady thing. Thank you, Judd Apatow. You have done this to us. Um, but I feel like you're still getting a lot of that alive and living well on, like, the SNL people that start to come out. Mm-hmm. Kirsten Wig, we brought you were you and I were talking about earlier. Um, her Liza Minnelli uh, turning on a lamp, I think, is one of the funniest things I've ever seen, and I have no idea why I think that's funny. It's just there's something so inherently absurd and visceral about the physical that you're just like, I I, I can't I, I can deconstruct a joke. It's like, hey, beat beat breath punchline, yes. you know, like the the rhythms make sense, but when it comes to physicality it's just so much harder to kind of parse it out. Like, why does that strike me as funny? Well, it's so timeless also. Like, we can watch, you know, Charlie Chaplin do something and we'll still laugh the same way that audiences laugh then, but writing some sort of, you know, ju- there's so much, like, humor that changes over the course of things, but I feel like physical comedy is so utterly timeless. And so many of the gags in the two films we're going to talk about are about inherent pain. And so you can <laughs> yes. be very empathetic as an audience member to these films, because we none of us want to experience this incredible injury that both of these films <laughs> revel in. So no matter what, to your point, PD, like you, you don't want to get kicked in the crotch. And so when it happens for 120 years of cinematic history, we have the same reaction. Yeah, someone time. walking into a door is going to be funny, no matter Ugh. no matter what yeah. uh, when the building was built, you know. Yeah. <laughs> the rake gag on The Simpsons with uh, Sideshow Bob just like hitting the rake yeah. over and over again, right? Yeah. It just keeps being funny. All right. Well, let's get into our first film for today. So if you were making a list of the greatest comedic performers of all time, who would you put on the list? Well, I know Alicia Fletcher would have Martin Short right on there. 91 was a big year for short comedies. We've already talked about his standout performance in Father of the Bride as Frank. And perhaps it's the success of that small, memorable performance that overshadows a movie that was on a loop in my home as a child and physically made my 12-year-old cousin wet himself with laughter. <laughs> now, Tear Luck is a movie that was savaged by critics at the time, and perhaps I'm blinded by nostalgia, but is this a movie that should be reevaluated even just for the Martin Short performance? Now, Alicia, you picked this one for the podcast. Do you want to tell us why and a little bit about what it's about? I, I grew up with it, too like you. I think this was on television a lot, which is very common for a film that didn't reap box office success. It gets sold cheap to 
TV rights and then they play it recurrently forever during our childhood. Um, this is a film from 1991. So we were, I think, Becky and I around the same age. Um, perfect timing for us if this was showing in 92 and 93. I picked it because I went to Mexico recently and I was looking for a film to watch that took place in Mexico. We had watched um, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia the, <laughs> the night before, which is a very <laughs> different vibe. Um and so we watched this and because I, I we, we remembered it and I was like, oh, pure luck. I, you know, it takes place in Acapulco. This this will be interesting. What I couldn't have predicted was how my body, having not seen this film for 30 years, how I would react to every gag before it was going to happen. Like it was a muscle memory in the same way that when you play a video game, like let's say you play Mario 3 um, after many, many years, your thumbs move. You're not even thinking about how your thumbs are moving on that controller. You just know where the jumps are. This was happening to me with pure luck. And I realized that this was a film that I loved as a child that I completely forgot about for several decades. <laughs> and then coming back to it, you know, I really started to reflect on, you know, if I had not grown up with this film, how would I respond to this film from 1991? Would it have any value whatsoever? Um, and I'm not sure, so I'm really curious what you both think. But I wanted to talk about it because I think it encapsulates an actor who I, I absolutely admire, who is immensely successful. But if you dissect his career, Martin Shorts, it is very odd and full of incredible failures um, and studio bankruptcies. <laughs> and yet today, you know, with Steve Martin and Murders in the Building, like it's he's still on top. And I watch this and I see pure comedy. And to PD's point about bringing up the silent era with Chaplin, I think the element of physical comedy in Pure Luck is so Chaplin-esque, has lots of Buster Keaton in it. It's so silly. And if you're going to make a stupid film, I think you make it capital S stupid. And both Pure Luck and Hot Shots are that. They knew what they were doing. And yes, of course, critics hated these films. Um, but it delighted younger audiences. And I think whereas Hot Shots, which we'll talk about, has survived, Pure Luck does deserve reconsideration because there is a gag where he's, Martin Short's trying to be very serious and he's, um, <laughs> there's a straw. And I know it's coming every time. I can't stop laughing. Where And it's such a testament to his physical comedy. The straw goes right up his nose. And I'm sure and it's a trick. The like the Telling me. Oh! It is horrifying <laughs> that's the part that killed my my cousin yeah we've had it happen where it goes up like a center this goes up like six inches <laughs> like it would be touching his brain essentially and i can't stop laughing even thinking about it um that and the tree gag with the the crotching the like we'll talk about it later but um what a what an insane film that's a remake of a French classic. I just don't understand this at all. Can you give us a very brief plot summary on this one, please? I mean, it like I said, it's capital S stupid. Um, <laughs> there is, you know, a wealthy businessman who has a daughter who is very accident prone and she goes by herself to a vacation on a vacation into Mexico and every accident possible befalls her and she's kidnapped. Um, and so the idea here is they're going to send this business's accountant, who is also, this is Martin Short's character, incredibly accident prone, assuming that when he goes to Mexico with a private investigator that he doesn't know, he doesn't know why he's going. He thinks they're um, hiring him because he's got really good intuition. And he thinks Danny Glover's character is working for him, which he's not. The idea is he will have all the same accents that befell this woman will happen to him and he will somehow stumble upon her. Um, and so we just go along for the ride in Mexico and ha watch him just be horribly maimed and horribly injured and beaten up by thugs and try to defend himself, but he can't. And so it's Danny Glover sort of as a straight man. And yeah, it's wild, wild, wild. All right, Petey, you don't have the nostalgia factor. This was your first time seeing it. So how did this go for you? The gags, classic. Loved them. When they mm -hmm. let Martin Short and Danny Glover do their thing, perfection. As a movie, I thought it was Garbaggio. I'm... Agreed. I, I know. I know. It doesn't I hold thought up. <laughs> the stakes were utterly misplaced. I thought the editing was rough. I thought that there was like mm -hmm. they just couldn't quite decide what film they were making. That, but again, that being said, when it was just like Danny Glover and Martin Short sitting 
and having a conversation or doing a thing or like them wrestling with that car, like it was great. So that saved it for yeah. me. But in terms of like giving it a watch now as an elder, I was like, meh. There's even moments like Harry Shearer is in this as well, very briefly, who's mm-hmm. one of my favorite comedic actors. I think he's he's very funny, but he also comes to that talky thing as opposed to the physical thing. But he knows how that silence should work. So when he first invites Martin Short into the boardroom and trying to prove his point, he's like, just take a seat anywhere you like. And he's broken one chair of these like 30 chairs. And of course, Martin Short goes, sits on that one chair. And then he goes, okay, you're done. Thank you. But like just the silence and anticipation of Harry Shearer being like, wait for it, wait Mm -hmm. for it. It's like, okay, that's really funny. But you're right. Like there's some weird editing things and tonal things that I don't know if they hold up quite as well. And I I think part of that is that this also feels like a, despite the fact that there's like a gang shooting, um, this feels like it's something that we don't do anymore, like the family film. Like I think, like Alicia, you and I were what, like eight, nine when this came out? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I feel like this is a movie where you would have seen you would you, you would have watched this with your family because there really isn't anything in it that you're going to have to like explain to your child for two hours contextually. You know, it's but just funny thing happens. Of, funny um, thing happens. Jokes around sex work, though, which probably when I <laughs> reflect true. back on being a child, maybe was inappropriate. But uh, yeah, it is very PG. All that comedy from the '90s had both things. Like I go back and watch you know things that I'm just even like, wait, this was allowed, but I wasn't allowed to watch this other thing. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, let's talk about the Martin Short performance. So this comes at a period in his career where they are trying to figure out if he is a star and if he can lead a performance or if he is going to be a character actor. Alicia, let's start with you. You have a um, knowledge of the works of Martin Short, and this is a weird period for him because he's he's just coming off filming Clifford as well, and that Mm -hmm. was supposed to be his big breakout. Do you want to tell us a little bit about all that? Well, I think Three Amigos is probably the big breakout, right? Because if you think about his SNL career, and it's really important that we're talking about Harry Shearer and Martin Short together because they were writers on SNL together. They were partnered. Neither of them survived the SNL factory. Um, Harry Shearer was fired or let go after a year for being too difficult. And Martin Short, I think, lasted two seasons coming off of SCTV, but never really found the success that I think was prophesized for him. Um, I do want to shout out one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Like when I need a good laugh, when I am in the total like pits, I watch an SNL skit. It's one of the only ones that features Harry Shearer and Martin Short, and it does relate to Pure Luck. 1984 or 1985, and it's the synchronized swimmers. Um, so it's I love this one. these two guys, Martin Short and his brother, Harry Shearer, who want to qualify for the Olympics synchronizing team. They're going to be the first men to ever compete in synchronized swimming. And the problem here is that Martin Short's character, he has only a couple lines, but he looks at the camera, and it's like a documentary, and he says, I'm not a strong swimmer. And that's like his only <laughs> one. And he can't swim. He's wearing like a life jacket. Like he's, And then they go and oh, it's Christopher Guest also testing out Guffman. He shows up in this Bob Fosse role. He's doing as Guffman. It's one of the funniest things SNL's ever done. And it, I think it's one of the skits that got Harry Shearer and Martin Short um, dismissed from SNL. <laughs> so, you know, then Martin Short goes on and does Three Amigos and he has a lot of hits and even Three Fugitives. But he just never lands. And I think it's because he's always referencing so many of his classic characters. If you watch Pure Luck, you'll see Ed Grimley there. There's a dance sequence, and it's Ed Grimley from SCTV. Ed Grimley shows up in the synchronized swimming routine as well. But um, And then you see a future Jiminy Glick, because there's a point in the film where he is stung by a bee. And we think we've averted catastrophe. They're going to go up in an airplane and the bee swatted away. But we don't. And then we realize it's on his back. And as he leans back in the plane, it stings him. And then he slowly blows up to like a 300-pound person. Um, And that's totally what inspired Jiminy Glick for a few years after that. So I think he's always, he's just always testing and experimenting. And I think you get a sense that for him... Of course, he never landed big in Hollywood because he just, the art of comedy is too important to him. The constant, like, keep working on these 40-year-old characters, keep them going is important to him. He just doesn't fit the mold. Um, We have a lot of Canadians that 
did incredible box office that was started out in comedy, including Jim Carrey and Mike Myers. But Martin Short never, never franchised himself that way. Does that make sense? Yeah, I feel like Martin Short truly finds comedy delicious. And so when you're having someone who just wants to like taste all of these things and show all of these things and do like a beat, like, like a juggler of comedy in a way, it's not Mike Myers is known for his maniacal singular drive, you know, towards mm-hmm. mapping it all out and putting it all out there and building this empire. And I think Martin Short is at his best when he is like a guest on a late night show. You get just, yeah. you know, six minutes of absolute pure comedy. He is so smart. He's so funny. Every cross of his leg, every look to the camera, every turn yeah. to the audience, every single, he is able to like physically be comedic. He's witty. He's charming. So, so intelligent. Into- he's so whip smart that it's almost like he's, I could see in pure luck that it was almost like him trying to do a thing because it was he was pretty understated. He played it pretty straight. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't like, it's like he fell, you know, he fell down or he hit his head and he was like, oh, sorry that happened rather than it being a hole. You know, it was like he was, so I think it was him really restrained because they didn't know what film they were making. They weren't making a slapstick. They were having yeah. a slapstick comedian do slapstick things in a serious movie. I don't really don't know what was happening. <laughs> it's like he's the Daniel Day-Lewis of like slapstick comedy. Like it's all about, like it's so serious. It's such a method. It takes so much out of him. He lives and breathes it. And it's so interesting looking at his career over the last 10 or 15 years because like, look at Paul Thomas Anderson casting him in Inherent Vice. Like he's had some crazy roles recently because there's that new generation of directors who grew up with him in these films. They love him as an actor. And so he gets to do some dramatic roles. Um I feel like if you had grown up with pure luck, it would be a very different experience because you wouldn't care about the drama because you're entirely right. It makes no sense. The stakes aren't there. But those the peppering of those physical gags are so well orchestrated. <laughs> and that's totally Martin Short kind of working with a, a director who had never worked in Hollywood before, um, Nadia Tess probably kind of orchestrating what camera work was needed for some of these gags and sort of where the sight lines would be. And yeah, it's, it's, it's like a comic um, slapstick ballet. And when it's, when it hits, it hits so well when it's not hitting, it's, it's a shame, but I do think this film has some worth and give it some more time. It might be, it might gain some reputation. I well, hope. Danny Glover is a beautiful pairing. He's great. Oh, he's this. so good. He's so great handsome too. I was, whew. yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Ooh, that jawline. Ooh. I love taking a film, like this is a remake of uh, Le Chevre, the, the Goat. It's a French film from 1981 um, by like a very famous French director, uh, Francis Weber. And it's so interesting to take a Gerard Depardieu character and cast Danny Glover in that role. It works actually really, really well. And of course, Danny Glover has some experience with comedy from um, Lethal Weapon, but I don't think he'd ever done comedy like this before. And now we think of him and he did, you know, he's the straight man in the Royal Tenenbaums and arguably one of the best characters in the Royal Tenenbaums. Like now he kind of has that behind him. But he's coming off of, you know, To Sleep With Anger and The Color Purple. And to do this is like, damn. (laughs) <laughs> what a what a it seems like he yeah. wanted an Alcapulco vacation. They got to spend two months in Alcapulco. There's uh interviews with Bobby Wygett where he's like, Yep, yeah, my daughter and my daughters and my wife were here last weekend. They had yeah. a great time and then they got too hot, so they went home. It's so interesting seeing Mexican vacations from that era too, because it's such a different it's just it's a different Mexico in some ways, like Alcapulco especially. This is also, I will say, there are some elements of racism in this film that are very problematic, very in, in touch oh, yeah. with what was going on in 1991, um, unfortunately. But if you can kind of reflect on that and make sure you're acknowledging it, it still has some very, very interesting things to say about American-Mexican politics. Well, I mean, you're coming out of especially all the cartel stuff that's happening and the war on drugs with Nancy Reagan, because we're just, uh, 89 is the last year of Ronald Reagan and that whole debacle. Um, We're just about to get Clinton. So it's just like a weird time politically where there really aren't 
aside from the Gulf War, it's a very internal enemy thing. We're going to be talking about this a lot when we talk about movies like Boys in the Hood and New Jack City, where we start looking inwards at who are who we think our quote-unquote enemies are, what the issue is, and being destroyed from within. So it's a very interesting time when you're looking at any sort of political stuff because we hadn't had peace for this long. So when you look at comedies, that's also going to reflect that as well. Is what kind of things are people going to find funny? Like what sort of levity? What what are we going to make fun of? Um, and you don't see a lot of satire here. I mean, Hot Shots has some. Hot Shots is like a whole other thing. We're going to get into it. But like you're not seeing scathing satire here. Everything is pretty goofy. Yeah, capital G goofy. This is like the goofiest legitimate film could get. I did, you know, there is so much casual racism and misogyny. And, you know, I oh, say yeah. casual and to be honest, like it's <laughs> that is built correct. that way. The system is built. I mean, that we're literally, that's, that's what, that's what white supremacy is, is like me, a white person being like, haha, there was casual racism. Like, no, mm -hmm. it was built that way. But I, what I actually, I felt myself bracing, you know, this like, a white man and a black man teaming up. And I was like, oh, here we go. We're going to, I'm going to have to sit through, like, I'm not going to be able to do it. And I actually really appreciated this film because Danny Glover was the smartest person in the room. He was the person in charge. Like he was mm -hmm. the guy and you get to watch this white man assume that he is in charge like it was such a white privilege thing you know where he was just like oh <laughs> surely i must be you know me an accountant i mm -hmm. must be picked to be the head of this international investigation who was i amazed when mr highsmith asked me to head up this investigation were you well actually not really no i mean i've never cut out to be an accountant i have other sides to me and like that was part of the send up and there was even a moment where he's telling danny glover he's like look people find you intimidating and Danny Glover's like, how so? And you see Martin Short just like back down. And I was like, yeah, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So like, that part was actually really surprising to me. There's a very interesting gag on this point of yours, PD. Um, it's early in the film. They've just landed in Mexico and they're sitting down to breakfast. Danny Glover's at a table and Martin Short comes into the restaurant. I know I, you're like cringing because it is one of the most cringeworthy worthy gags, but I think it's really interesting what it says about casual racism. Um, he walks into the restaurant and he sits down at the wrong table. He's like looking at a map or something and not really paying attention. And he sits down at the only other table where there's another black man. And the guy sitting with him is dressed similarly, like in neutral colors as Danny Glover. But it's used as a gag to show just how bad his luck is. And yet it's also really reflecting on how privileged and idiotic this guy is that he just sits down, sees the first kind of dark-skinned person in his periphery and just sits down thinking that that's his table. And I really, you know, I sit, I reflected on that gag and I was like, what is this gag saying? Because it's, I think it's saying more than it's... I really agree. Meant, that it meant to. Like, it's not just like, oh, this guy is bad luck. I think it's like the director who's coming from Australia um, saying, you know, you're putting a very dumb white man and a person of color in Mexico, let's see what would happen with that dynamic. And with, it's just such a fascinating gag to start off with. And then the straw thing happens. And that makes it, I think, <laughs> even better because you have this really yeah. tension-filled gag that has racial implications and then he just sticks that, that straw right. I mean, like, <laughs> that is where, honestly, that's where the stakes are the best in this. It's not the, like, plot stakes. It's yeah. this. Yeah. Because when that happens, the joke is not, all black people look the same because they focus on Danny Glover's face and he doesn't say anything, but his face just goes, really? <laughs> just shaking yeah. his head. And you see Martin Short yeah. die inside because Martin Short is like, oh God, <laughs> yeah. he thinks that I think that all black people look the same. And oh no. And you have to watch him <laughs> like nervously eat this undercooked egg as he's trying to like, you know, yeah. get it back together. And I think like, that's again, it's so it's such a good dynamic where Danny Glover like is in tar charge. He is intelligent and he's not the butt of the joke. Like that's a that's a read on Martin Short being like a mm -hmm. sweet dummy. Yeah. Thinking he's in charge. Yeah. yeah, and such a dummy. It's um and you know, obviously this film ends with a big blow up between them, and it's revealed that in fact he was hired because he's so unlucky and not because of his accounting skills. And he's really physically hurt. And there's scenes of like Danny Glover kind of carrying him in this Pieta, like Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
through the jungle that is like they've just blown up and this guy's like been through quicksand and he's had a like crazy reaction to bees and it actually ends quite sweetly like i do believe maybe i'm very naive but i do believe that like danny glover once he's gotten past all the physical threat by even just being near this person does see like that this is you know a guy who's had a really hard life and doesn't even know it like every time he something bad happens and he's like Oh, yeah, no, I've never been on a flight that has taken off on time. Oh, my luggage has always been destroyed every time I fly. Like, he doesn't even know yeah, that his sweet. situation is He's a is sweet bad. idiot. I like that. I, You yeah, know, maybe yeah. what made this, like, hard is I think there's a version of this. There's an episode of The American Office mm. where mm-hmm. um, Michael goes missing without his cell phone for the day. And nobody knows where he is. And he's in this... A loving relationship with Holly and they don't know if they're going to be together or not and they suddenly realize that Holly is this homing beacon for Mike and Michael mm-hmm. and so they start following Holly around town and she does the same dumb things and gets distracted by the same stuff and I kept thinking of that episode and I for me that's really perfect television it was like there was a real sweetness about it at the end yeah. they see each other and they're like oh my god like we're meant to be together you're you're my soup snake you know what and it's like <laughs> um, but for like it didn't this this film didn't do what i think i've seen done you know so much later in television because yeah. i liked that they that that he was still happy yeah it wasn't a negative film. He's like, oh, all this stuff happens to me. Well, let's just keep going. Yeah, he has hope um, and a pretty positive yeah. outlook. I do wonder, like, I think, obviously, I wonder if, like, the producers and the writers of The Office had seen that this film for that episode. Yeah, I wonder. Um, especially, Or they had seen the French, like, the French version is a very famous film. Like, I actually saw the French version pretty like pretty recently and didn't even realize what I was watching and was like, oh my God, this is like pure luck. And then was like, oh, it's the same. Because <laughs> exactly. it is pure luck. Um, I mean, we should get into uh, Francis Weber a little bit um, because a previous Martin Short uh, movie, Three Fugitives, is based on Les Fugitives, which also stars Gerard Depardieu. Toy is a remake for him. Dinner for Schmucks is uh, a remake oh, of his the film, The original Dinner, Dinner for Schmucks is fantastic. The Dinner Game, it's yeah. wonderful. Uh, like Casual Fall is him, The Birdcage. Yeah. So, like, he just has, like, hit after hit after hit that got remade in uh, in the U.S. So there's obviously something, like, French comedy tends to be very biting and very witty and very politicized. And I think about something like the toy that got uh, transferred over, and it just, it loses some of that, like, French snarky bite. Like, I feel like they mm. need to be smoking more cigarettes and kind of staring down their nose while they are on set, you know, to really get that sense of humor. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. It is interesting how many French, I mean, Three Men and a Little Baby is a French remake, too. Like, these are these are interesting. Or, you know, a slightly pregnant man gets remade into Junior 20 years later. Like, it's so, I don't know how much has been written about this, that some of our, like, very seminal slapstick goofiest of comedies in the 90s were all remakes of 70s and 80s french film that didn't often didn't get released in north america purposely because studios would be like no okay we we don't want to release this in north america because we want to remake it quite immediately after um yeah it is wild it is wild what is that like you know france loves jerry lewis like where does that work how does that how is that distillation (laughs) genealogy work where it's like they're watching Jerry Lewis we don't like Jerry Lewis then they make their own kind of Jerry Lewis movies and then we like those so we remake them but we still don't like Jerry Lewis what is that damn I don't know <laughs> you just broke PD I know <laughs> I, you, you re- this revelation that there was because like you know 91 was such a like Incre- the early 90s for comedy. I mean, we had megastars and it's like, yeah. you're right that they were just trying to figure out who fits where. They're trying, you know, where does Catherine O'Hara go? Where they're does all Jim Canadian. Go? They're all Canadian. Think about the early 90s they and are. early, they're all from Hamilton specifically. <laughs> What's going on there? I still don't, but um, yeah. Some, something in the water. Something fascinating with the early 90s between Mike Myers and Jim Carrey and Catherine O'Hara and Martin Short. It's just, it's... And I'm sure I'm forgetting like five too that are. But there's also a really interesting article from uh, Stephen Schiff talking on um, NPR in 1991 about his frustration with the fact that they keep trying to make SCTV 
uh, actors stars because they're mm. not like they're not able to lead movies. So he talks about John Candy and Delirious, which we've talked about on the podcast. Um, and it's true, like John uh, John Candy works best when he is in an ensemble. He is not a lead. Oh, man, he right? he like, loved you, the hell out of Uncle Buck. He's not he's not leading though. He's oh. in ensemble with all the kids, Hi. and like it's it's him in ensemble. I guess, but who I could if you it's, ask me to name the bounce. kids, I'm like, who are the kids in Uncle Buck? I just think of John Candy. <laughs> Well, Macaulay Culkin is there, but like oh, yeah, his relationship guy. Yeah. with his that guy is his relationship with like the 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 daughter and like that's growing. It's it's an ensemble yeah. piece, and you spend more time with her than you do with him. Like it's one of those things everybody remembers John Candy. He's just very. I, memorable. I think SCTV was too smart. Um, yeah, you know, if you talk to Conan O'Brien, if you I, I don't talk to Conan O'Brien. If you listen to Conan O'Brien talking <laughs> to other people, if you did, um, you know, SCTV comes up all the time. Same with Kids in the Hall, but with SCTV, I think it was too smart, too weird. Um, and it's only really now that some of the SCTV or TVers are landing. Like if you think about Eugene yeah. Levy, Catherine O'Hara, um, Martin Short, for instance, like now they're helming gigantic projects that honestly start out small, like Schitt's Creek, and then become these global phenomenons. Like it's so weird when I'm in the U.S. or you know finding out how popular Schitt's Creek is in Europe and Korea and and Asia and like. Schitt's Creek is massive. Massive. There. And it's I didn't actually I actually didn't realize that Kim's convenience is even bigger. But like it's um it is fascinating. It just took 40 years, 50 years for SCTV. Yeah. But even to... you're watching them toss each other projects. So like if you go back and watch Father of the Bride, Eugene Levy is in it for like mm-hmm. three minutes auditioning as a wedding singer. Mm-hmm. But that's not a cameo. People wouldn't have known who he was because he also wasn't um the dad from American Pie yet either. Like that was his big breakout again. So it would have just been like, oh, look at this funny guy singing. Because, like, Christopher Guest movies, very under the radar until really you get to best in show. And then that's what sort of breaks it. Okay, for for Petey, you're coming from the groundlings. Is there something to being trained in ensemble comedy where you are trained to run with something, to work off of others, to keep the ball going? Is that, and you... Is that is there something there? Like, if you're trained that way and you come up through SCTV and and then you're cast in a film where you don't have that ensemble and it's just is that maybe where the ball gets dropped i mean those are also schools of improv and these are scripted features yeah so it's there's a lot of different i mean the fact that it's long form the fact that it's a whole different environment that it's not i mean you see these great improvisers you know the basis of our form is yes and which essentially is is fully community-based comedy, but also best joke wins. You go into a scene, you think you have something great, and the person next to you says something that's just a little off or just a touch of gold, you immediately pivot everything you're doing to support that idea. And Mm -hmm. that's where you get, then when you turn and support that person, that person can go and go and go. There's like this, there's this kind of famous story about Melissa McCarthy breaking her nose on stage, on the Groundlings stage, trying to pop a balloon with her face. It was a bit that just kept going and going to the point where she slams her head onto the stage to like break this balloon. I actually don't even know if the balloon breaks, but she breaks her nose and she keeps going. And it's like sort of this like legendary- She deserves that paycheck now. (laughs) The thing is like, but you see that Melissa McCarthy when she's at her best is like, I will do anything. I mean, her and Bridesmaids, just like, I am going to, I am going to go in. I am going to hit and hit and hit and hit. So, so yes, I mean, I think that like Steve Martin and Martin Short and Father of the Bride, I know you're talking about this in another episode, but like that, that is perfection because Mm -hmm. like he gets to come in you know, Martin Short gets to be his shaky little chihuahua self and like really freak out, do his big, you know, accent uh-huh. and whatever. And Steve Martin as a straight man just is sort of looking at him horrified. And they're both doing comedy in that moment, you know, like this, it, yeah, it requires the right straight man and tone. And is exactly why Clifford works. Cause we're talking about then it's Martin Short and Charles Grodin. And Charles Grodin for me, one of the funniest actors of all time who never cracks a smile. All of the jokes that are surrounding his characters, he's never smiling. He is like grimacing. And so there's something about Martin Short who there's those duos, like Martin Short playing off of Harry Shearer in the um, SNL skit, which I really hope we get some audio of. Nobody is just going to walk up and hand us a gold medal, especially since men's synchro isn't even in the 88 Olympics yet. 
But that's okay, because we could use the time. Because I'm, I'm not that strong a swimmer. Martin Short with Danny Glover here. Martin Short with Charles Grodin. Martin Short with um, uh, Steve Martin. Like, he's just such a great duo. Such a great, you know, he's coming off of Three Amigos where they kind of like divided up a bit, but like he's such, he's so great in playing off of others that I think it's fine that he's not like his own star. Like he is. It's just how we judge that is so subjective to me. We have, we have so many of those actors. Actually, Hot Shots does a really good job employing a lot of those people, but like, you know, we have Judy Greer, who's exceptional in everything. I think a lot of people maybe outside the industry couldn't name her by name, but they have three different things that they absolutely loved her. And like character actors have always done this where they come in, they give this burst of flavor. Like Martin Short has an energy that I do think of him like a chihuahua, like it can't be contained. That's why he's so good in a six minute interview, but him stretching out over the course to me, it's not utilizing him best, even though he can do drama. He was incredible in um, The Morning Show. Hmm. That wasn't a comedic role at all. It was mm-hmm. him and Steve Carell both doing very serious roles. They were mm-hmm. talking about, you know, the Me Too movement, and they were they were kind of bad guys. Yeah. And he was great in it. He's because all comedic actors have such a depth of drama. I mean, look at what's happening even just in the immediacy, immediacy of right now. You have someone like one of my favorite shows of all time is Barry and like how Bill Hader went from the guy doing Vincent Price impressions on SNL, which I think is my favorite thing in the world, to directing, like helming, directing, writing one of the darkest, but I think most important shows ever produced. It, it makes sense. That's something that comedy breeds, like the darkness and where you go and where what you channel and what you bring to a really good joke just translates really well then for villainy and 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 mm-hmm. and drama and it happens with jim carrey it happens with adam sandler like it's and yet we, we yeah, pretend robin we're, williams and oh my god robin williams and then we pretend we're so surprised like i can't believe they had that in them and it's like if they had if they have to have that in them to Perfect. be that funny it's reverse engineering they've always well, i think that. that is the perfect place for us to head into our next film and look at a, a whole cavalcade of character actors and people you don't think of as character actors but obviously that's what they're doing it's hot shots and it's coming up after the break hey cam yes becky <laughs> so dry. I love it. So we've been doing this show for a few years now, and we have this huge back catalog behind us, and it features so many amazing guests. <laughs> Not only have I really enjoyed sharing what I've learned, but also hearing so many different perspectives and stories from our guests has been really fun and enlightening. Uh, like Jay Baruchel talking about Canadian film. He really is that passionate about it. It's not an act. Yeah, I mean, it, that's the interesting thing, too, is everybody, even if you're like, this is a massive movie that everybody's seen, everybody's going to consume it differently. And I think that that's why we like to get on like a diversity of voices, because uh, quite often, yeah, you just don't expect what you expect. And I and I think it's been like very satisfying. Yeah. And I mean, then you get an episode like uh, Diabolik Magazine's incredible Kat Ellinger uh, talking about Yodorowsky's Holy Mountain. And I don't think I've heard the word uh, Beatles butthole used so intellectually <laughs> before, nor do I think I ever will again. And of course, you can hear her and all of our other amazing guests. Can, of course, name them all for lack of time. You guys want to get back to the show and listen to our current amazing guests. So I'm going to let you do that right now. But if you want to hear more, Of course, you can get episodes wherever you found this podcast, or you can visit hollywoodsuite.ca slash podcast. Okay, let's get back to the show. The spoof isn't really a genre we do much of anymore, which is probably because a true spoof is really, really hard to do. Like satire, you need to be able to take core truths of the thing you're spoofing and play it completely straight so the absurdity shines through. Get it right, and you'll have a legendary benchmark comedy people remember more than the original film it's parodying, like Airplane. Get it wrong, and it is, as the kids say, pretty cringe. Still, basing a movie around gags about other movies has the potential to seriously limit the shelf life of your film. I hadn't seen Hot Shots since I was way too young to have seen Hot Shots, and I went into it with a bunch of trepidation on if it was going to hold up to a modern viewing experience. Now, Petey, is this one that should have been left on the shelf? What do you think? I absolutely loved it, and I did not go into it thinking I would. I was like, I'm sorry, a spoof movie with Charlie Sheen? I thought it was one of the tightest comedies 
Yeah. I've seen in a long time. I thought it was really brilliant, actually. Helps that it's 84 minutes. <laughs> it was fast. I love a breezy 80-minute comedy. It was really nice. Yeah, I. it was an incredible, yeah, spoof of Top Gun, which I've seen, but I also think you don't necessarily need to, which is also really nice. It broadens your audience. And- I could not believe rewatching this, how many, because I, I did grow up with it, how many genres and film tropes I would have come to understand through Hot Shots as a child? Like, had I seen Body Heat? No. But I understood what they were kind of parodying in the olive in the belly button scene or the sizzling bacon on her body. Was, the nine and a half weeks. Yeah. Yep. And I I don't think I had seen... Oh, I was nine and a half weeks on. Sorry, I got my erotic thrillers mixed, mixed, mixed up. Um, <laughs> I hadn't seen Top Gun. I don't think I'd seen Top Gun when I watched Hot Shots as a kid. But I came to understand all of the genre tropes and the genre sort of syntax through... Hot shots. So many different films. I now realize I experienced Dances with Wolves for the first time through Hot Shots, which is highly problematic for multiple reasons. But um, I can't believe how wide, how spanning these films are for kids and how what they teach them about filmmaking and genre and storytelling. And it's just fascinating to me. I just love it. I love that films like this exist. Petey, do you want to give the folks at home a quick little plot summary of this one? Uh, Hot Shots is a spoof of um, Top Gun, where it stars um, Charlie Sheen and uh, his hot nemesis, Carrie Elvis. And uh, they they need to fly, even though there is some, some evil guys hurting the mechanics of the planes. I didn't really understand Mm -hmm. why their motivation quite, but um, something was happening. They're trying to bilk the government for more money is what they're trying to do. So they're trying to prove that the current planes are dangerous so that they can then sell them. They're more expensive. And that's why they get Topper Harley, played by Charlie Sheen, back because they think he's a loose cannon and he will definitely fail to make the mission and therefore they can prove they need to, this big contract. I obviously focused way too hard on the it's story. It's an anti-capitalist <laughs> message. You're right there, Alicia. These are the things I know. Excellent. <laughs> no, what were you distracted by, Petey? I was genuinely shocked at how much I loved it and how tight it was. I mean, this was like almost, I'll, I'll say Simpsons here because I have, I have watched The Simpsons. I just wasn't an early devotee, but like Simpsons is known for its like joke, 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 where it can hit every 30 seconds. And like genuinely this utilized, you know, written intelligent jokes. It used visual gags. It used the the pacing of this film mm-hmm. was so smart. There were so many straight men. Lloyd Bridges is absolutely <laughs> impeccable in this film. Yeah. I mean, I was yes, like- what he he kills in every scene what's his name who is like talk about ultimate character actor whose name kevin kevin dunn is incredible i mean he's now finally being utilized when he was in veep is like Mm -hmm. him at his best but like that's another actor who's been in i'm sure 100 projects and he's i just feel like it utilized a lot of those people who have like you know you got to see like charlie sheen and john crier together yeah, even baby Kirsty Swanson uh, is super mm-hmm. fun. I think I think this mm-hmm. is this is pre Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I think Buffy the Vampire Slayer is ninety two, so this would be just the year before. Yeah. Um, but even then, like yeah. she's super funny in this for like the two minutes she's in. Like nobody, there's no squeaky wheel here. Everything is amazing, and that also goes for all the women. Like Valeria Galeno leads this, and she gets a ton to do. She it could not be more perfect. I mean, she is an incredible actor anyway, but like. Mm-hmm. She plays it so straight. She is so invested in what's happening that you just like, you can't take your eyes off her. And it's like, not just because she's beautiful, but like there is not a single person in this film who's acting as though they're doing a spoof. Everyone takes this so seriously that it is, it is tight as a drum. That's oh, the key. So That's why it works is the the seriousness yes. and not disrespecting the material. You, I think you genuinely understand these actors wanted to be there and they're having a reasonably good time. Uh, Valeria Galino, I mean, if you think about where she's coming off of, you know, she's kind of discovered in 1988. She's both in Big Top Peewee, but, um, you know, she was in, she was in Rain Man. Like she was in an Academy Award winning, major Academy Award winning film. She had auditioned for Pretty Woman and was second 
to Julia Roberts. And she said that she was in the like, you know, they were doing the read throughs for just the two of them. And she saw Julia Roberts in the costume, like the the um, sex worker costume come down the hall. And she was like, oh, that's (laughs) that that's it. Like, this is the perfect person. Um, And yet, you know, she takes this role really seriously. I kind of loved seeing her recently in um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I don't Oof. think people even realize that she's in, but that's her. Like, I was staring at her when I first saw that film at TIFF. I was, like, staring at her. I was like, why are you in my childhood? Who are you? Why do I know you so well? And then it hit me. I was like, Hot Shots <laughs> and Hot Shots Part 2. Um, but she's, you know, she's a, a trained, she's also a director now. Like, she's got a really cool career. And I love seeing how good she is in this. She's also in a serious role in The Morning Show. Oh, okay, it's I haven't watched incredible. The Morning Show. I clearly need to watch this. Y'all, so many people have missed The Morning Show. Yeah, okay. I absolutely slept on it. I was like, okay, Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon, like whatever. It is. Have you no, seen it, it, Becky? But Reese Witherspoon, I know with her producing, is like killing it. Like she knows how to pick a project. One of the things I loved about this review from the Washington Post is that they nail, ex- like, I didn't know this. You know when someone like encapsulates in a sentence exactly how you feel about something, you don't know how to put your finger on it? They say, but mm-hmm. by sheer weight of numbers, many of the gags works. It depends on your ability to mm-hmm. lower yourself into or sheer stoically clear of the idiocy pit. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> yes. I, yeah, the idiocy pit. I don't know, like every time there was a weird bird joke or duck joke, which I don't even understand why there are that many in the movie. I guess a lot of pilots hit birds and they hit ducks. So they have a lot of like, instead of the the fighter jets, like trying to track their target, there's like this little Looney Tunes duck that they give a which voice to that's like, oh, shit. <laughs> and it's like so stupid. It's so funny. So stupid, but so funny. This is the biggest capital S stupid and yet capital S successful. I, I think it's... um a remarkable film for 1991 and totally was a huge hit at the box office. Not well, surprising. Well, this unseated Terminator 2. I made $200 million on a $20 million budget. It's so smart. It's so smart. Also, we, we need to keep in mind contextually, 91, that we are literally coming off of the Gulf War just ended. Like they are, this was filmed during the Gulf War to the point where people, their takes kept getting interrupted by Cessnas flying over their sets because people thought they were doing top secret Gulf drills and were like trying to oh see God. what was going on when they were looking at all the fire pla- fighter planes. But like they're spoofing a war movie in the middle of one of the first wars the United States had had in like two decades. Right. Mm. It's so interesting that you see, um, I think it's, I can't remember if it's in this one or part two, but like Saddam Hussein as himself. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's a bold, that's a bold direction to go to in 1991. It's kind of interesting. But they really, yeah. they they take the reins and they just go for it. And um, I really respect that. We should probably also talk about like Abrams and Zaz and like what the pedigree I mean, they basically invented the genre, right? With airplane. Uh, no, before that, uh, Kentucky Fried Movie was their first one. Oh, of That's course. what put them on yes. the map. Followed by yes. uh, airplane, and then Police Squad, and then the Naked Gun series is there. They did three and four of the scary movie thing. They did Top Secret, and Top Secret, which is what yes. which gave us, you know, which gave us Val Kilmer, right? So, PD, have you seen Top Secret? No. Oh, so it's 1984. It's Val Kilmer's debut. And it's just sort of the spoof of like spy movies. I think you would really, really like it. It is also very silly, but very, very well done. It's it's definitely the closest in relation to Hot Shots, in my opinion. If you ever wanted to see Val Kilmer dressed as a cow, that is when yeah. <laughs> this is how you do it. Becky, get out of my head. <laughs> I mean, Val Kilmer wouldn't have gotten Top Gun without Top Secret. I'm going to put that out there. That's 100% true. I love that. <laughs> there's, your, there's your hot tip. That's going to end up all over Twitter. Like, did you know? <laughs> so Zaz is Zucker, Abrams, and Zucker. Correct. And the three of them all made these films, but then they break up for Hot Shots, right? And it's just Abram. It's just Abram, and it, they also um, they would break up and do different different films. So like Ruthless People with Bette Midler and Judge Reinhold, I, I love. love that too. Is theirs as well? So like they were capable of doing these like more mainstreamy sort of comedies, but like their true brilliance is like joke, 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 capturing the zeitgeist. Which is wild because Abrams talks about how he's like, I don't have time to watch movies. Like, people just tell me something's good and I and I try to incorporate it. Like, the Dances with Wolves stuff is only in there because he happened to screen a test trailer in front of a screening of Dances with Wolves and caught it and was like, oh, I guess this is popular. I should do something about this. Which is why all that Dances with Wolves stuff's in here. For lesser, I'm sure. 
but yeah, I was not a fan of that. That hasn't aged well. It didn't, it wasn't good at the uh, time. No. And the yeah. Iraqi yeah. fighter pilots isn't great either. Yeah. That's, that's not so great. But it's, it's wild that like you can make this stuff that really captures the zeitgeist in a way without being actually aware of the zeitgeist, like just to understand comedy on that level that you're like, I can, I can just write a joke. Like what, what's this movie kind of about fighter pilots with chips in their shoulders? Great. Done. Mm-hmm. It's like the junk drawer of a joke shop and you just rifle through it and like some of the stuff works and some of it doesn't, but there's just so much filled in that drawer that the jokes are there. Um, but there, it, yeah, if we were talking about pure luck as being sort of strangely casually racist this is not casual this is like using racism as jokes and it's those were not fun to watch and unfortunate um so that is a you know viewer beware for sure um but also very part of the 1991 zeitgeist of what was supposedly funny yeah it's sort of like that that was it i did once again, though, appreciate that it was the Native American man who actually had the jokes of the scene yeah. where he was doing a lot of like. Yeah, Rhino Rhino Thunder is the actor and he would have been very recognizable from a lot of films featuring. So American. handsome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah <laughs> I was I just watching these films for the cute boys, I guess. There you um, go. You're just like oh, oh, all about the thirst traps. You're like, oh, this one. That's 80%. 80% of film viewing is thirst trapping, I feel like. Uh, how do we feel about Carrie Alves in this? Because I love him. I love whenever he shows up. He's someone who makes me smile. Um, and I just love the fact that he has this deeply goofy sense of humor about himself. And it seems to be even when he's doing interviews about himself, everything is just this deep, self-deprecating humor. If you are a swashbuckling, handsome man and also have a sense of humor about yourself, it just takes you to the next level. Like he is so chiseled and handsome, like in such a traditional way. Yeah, because he can make fun of himself in Robin Hood Men in Tights and even, of course, The Princess Bride. That just kind of elevates him to the next level. Do you guys know his, his family history? Not until you put that link in the outline and I was like, what is this? So there is a <laughs> website I absolutely love called flashbackwithak.com. No C, just a K. Um, it's a photography website, but they post all these different photos and then they have stories that kind of go along with the different things. And the title of this article, if you want to read it, which I highly recommend because it's fascinating, is The Runaways When Dominic Elwes and Tessa Kennedy Shocked the World. So that's their, that's his mom and dad. Uh, Tessa Kennedy is not of the Kennedys, but she is of another famous Kennedy branch from the UK. Um, Dominic Elwes was a the son of a very famous biographer and like descendants from like barons and earls. So like he had money on his side. She had money on her side. But he was 30 and unemployed and basically just like considered a scoundrel. She was 19. She just turned uh, 19 years old. She falls in love with him and her parents go, yeah, this isn't happening. And so they take her off to the Middle East to try and distract her. And she runs up an enormous phone bill talking to this man. So when they get back, his pa- her parents go okay, clearly we need to put the kibosh on this. So they get a legal injunction that these two people are not allowed to get married. Like, Whoa. legally they go to the court and I thought she was way younger than 19. She was 19. I thought she was like 14. No, I looked this up. It's like 18, 19. Okay. I thought it was younger too, but it's not. It's like 18, 19. But still, 30 and 19 is still, 18, 19 is still not great. So they so normal in the 1950s. <laughs> Tell me about it. Like that was totally normal. But they're just like the guy doesn't have a job. Was the biggest thing is this guy is a bum. He's an artist, whatever. So then, so then it gets more wild. So they decide they're going to elope to Gretna Green, which is what everybody did at the time in Scotland. You know, that's your very like Lydia and Wickham escape plan. Then they realize, okay, because we're in the UK, someone's going to turn us in. So they hop on a boat and they go to New York. And then in New York, they're like, we're still not far enough away. So they go to Havana. And they end up in Havana, where Meyer Lansky himself organizes their wedding at one of his casinos. Meanwhile, they're being followed by, like, active paparazzi who are basically living with them. And they stay in Havana until the revolution comes, when they have to escape and go back to the U.K., when they get this happens for like a year, they get back to the UK and that's when he gets arrested and sent to prison for marrying her. <laughs> and then eventually, oh, why? I don't understand. Because this of this injunction, because honestly, the UK system is just that's so wild. Unconstitutional. You can't you would have think. a, like if they're both consenting adults. You would think 
But in between, that's when they she gets pregnant. She has Carrie. She has whose first name is actually Ivan. Uh, Ivan Simon Carrie is actually his full name. Um, but Whoa. but he's okay. So then they they actually stayed married for ten years. Then they get divorced. Then she becomes one of the biggest interior designers in the UK. She's like considered the grand dame of what? interior design in the UK. He was invor- involved with the um, uh, Lord Lucan scandal with the the Lord who murdered the nanny and then disappeared. And people still don't know where he is. He's one of the guys who turned on him. All of these things I've never heard this of. This stuff <laughs> is just, and I'm like, I'm sorry. And this is all Carrie Elvis's parents? So yes, this is this is what he comes from. Do you think they were proud when he starred in Top Gun? Or sorry, uh, in, Top in, Gun uh, I heard His father, I think, had passed away by that point. He ended his own life in the mid-70s. Um, yes, yeah, so there's a whole lot going on there, but his mother uh, apparently has always been very proud of her sons. So she has three sons and they are all really interesting humans. So yeah, that's where he comes from, is that whole giant scandal background. That's incredible. He he must have, I feel like the Princess Bride must have really resonated with him then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes that's, a lot of sense actually. But he's got yeah. fancy UK blood in him, right? Like, and I'm sure once someone goes through an ordeal like that, they have to have an amazing sense of humor, right? Like how else he do you survive He looks like that? he has fancy UK royal blood in mm-hmm. him. And he also like really channels that in Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yes, <laughs> very true. He carries himself very well. Um, yeah, so people want to know more about the story. It's amazing. And I, I also recommend Flashback as a just an interesting read in general. There's so much cool stuff on there. Lots of stuff if you're interested in like the Studio 54 Days. Lots of great photo essays and stories of people who were there. It's super fun. Yeah, so highly recommend that. In Hot Shots, he's never more perfect than at the end when he's like trying to charmingly say like, you should be with him and not me. And she's like, okay, cool, got it. Yeah, I'm doing it. <laughs> Are you walking anyway. away? You must forget me. No problem. I will. Please. Not a tear. Don't look back. That's my brave girl. I really love it. He's so good in it. He's, I think he's underutilized in it. I was actually surprised how little yeah. he was in it. He just plays delusional so well. I think that's mm-hmm. part of it, which also like he has the same thing weirdly kind of going on in Saw. I was just going to say, and then he made Saw. <laughs> quite the career trajectory. Well, so did Danny Clever did too. So, you know, there's that. Yeah. It's just, that's your career. Hey, we got to, we got to work. Okay. Let's not, let's not do judges. I'm not, I'm saying from spoofs to spa, or to saw, the man has range. Like I am am on board with this. (laughs) Last thing I do want to say is that uh, if you think you're too fancy for this movie, uh, this was the Royal Command performance of 1991, which uh, usually it's something fancy like Empire of the Sun or whatever. Uh, No. I feel like you have to explain what that is because not everyone's. Not everyone listening is going to understand what a royal so command. So the royal command is. performance is it is technically a charity where like the the like the royals like Queen Elizabeth and Charles and all of them pick one movie that they're going to like screen and they and whenever you see those like lineups of like your fancy actors in tuxedos like shaking the queen's hand or whatever and she goes down the line that's part of the royal command performance. So they they pick one movie and they watch it and they do it. That was the movie that year was Hot Shots and there's great photos of uh, Diana shaking Charlie Sheen's hand. And like, he's like got a full beard for some reason. He must've been shooting something. But uh, yeah, that was, that was the movie they picked. It doesn't look like Queen Elizabeth went, but definitely Charles and and Diana went. So it's, uh, of all the movies of 91, you could have picked. I mean, I would have preferred Silence of the Lambs. I think that's really the one I think everybody wanted. (laughs) Oh my God. Oh my God. That's so funny to think. Thelma and Louise for Princess Di. She could have watched Thelma and Louise and like maybe that would have helped. Burned it all down. No, no, bad things happen. I'm sure she did privately. And then was like, (laughs) you know what? Great idea, gals. (laughs) And that is where I am ending this episode. So Alicia Fletcher, thank you very, very much. Always a pleasure having you. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me to choose more Clifford offshoot films and pull some subject matter out of them. Anytime. We have another Nicolas Cage episode coming up, people. So Mm -hmm. uh, get ready for that one. Petey Gibson, thank you so much for joining us for the first time. It was absolutely a pleasure to have you. Such a pleasure to be here and to talk in support of stupidity, which I actually think (laughs) is a very... Very brilliant art. Film. Come swim in the it's idiot cathartic pit. and it's yes. important. It's there. Stupidity is therapeutic yeah. and I think very important uh, as an emotion. It gets a bad rap, and frankly, mm-hmm. I think it's actually very brilliant and very human. So excellent. And mm-hmm. now tell people how they can see more of your very brilliant and very human work. Oh jeepers! I don't know. <laughs> you know what? Just follow me on Instagram, and I'm sure I'll post about it there. I'm at pd underscore gibson, and uh, 
yeah, sometimes I, I go on little walks and take people with me and uh, I post about stuff I'm doing. So that's the place. That's very pleasant. Thank you very much, Petey. All right. And you can join us once again in two weeks where we're going to be looking at some smooth criminals. It's Bugsy and New Jack City. And we're going to be joined by Sleazoids podcast co-host Josh Lewis. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at HollywoodSuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton. Senior producer is Becky Shrimpton, and co-producers are Alicia Fletcher and Cameron Maitland. And today, featured Alicia Fletcher and Petey Gibson as our guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week. <laughs>